right. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. That was a very vibrant good morning. We're on it today, uh, even with a sleepy Sunday, drizzly feel. Uh, very good to see you this morning. If we have not yet met, my name is Paul, and I am the teaching pastor here. Again, so grateful to have the opportunity uh, to sing to Jesus with you, to worship alongside of you. Uh, y'all sound great this morning. Could hear everybody loud and clear, and that was fantastic. A couple of things uh, I want to share uh, with you before you go. I'd also say, if you're a guest this morning, man, so grateful that you have chosen to join us, to, uh, to, to spend time with us, to worship Jesus this morning. Uh, a couple of things. So for, for several months, it probably got a little bit annoying that I would talk about this thing called Life Group United. Anybody remember that? Like, yeah, yeah, we know it's a thing on Wednesday night. Stop talking about it, Paul. Um, but I didn't stop talking about it uh, because it was really, really important um, for really, I think, the life of the church uh, because we want to be a church that actually uh, tries to live out this crazy statement we have on the windows to be a church where no one walks alone. And we do that through our life groups. Uh, through groups, you are known and seen, and we want to actually try and do that. We're going to fail at it because we can never be perfect at that, but, but we want to try, give it all we can. And so over the last six weeks, every Wednesday night, we invited anybody who wasn't yet in a life group, we invited a couple of groups that already existed, and we said, hey, we're going to shake this up, and we're praying that coming out of this, we have new life group leaders, and we are praying that we have new life groups. And by the grace of God, both of those things happened. So like, hallelujah, praise God, that's great. And so coming out of Life Group United, we now have groups on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, in addition to a women's group on Tuesday, an 1825 group on Tuesday, which is a, a group for college students and young adults in the age range of 18 to 25, we have uh, another families group, right? So there are lots of different groups. And so what I want to do, if you were a part of Life Group United, I, I want you to stand up this morning. If you were there, go ahead and stand up. All right, so you look around the room, right? And, and this isn't everybody. Um, but I want you just to see, if you're not yet part of a life group, um, these people represent different groups that you could be a part of, okay? And so I, I just want you to, to see that. And what I'm going to do here in a moment, I'm going to pray over those that are standing. And what I also want to encourage, so after service, the life group leaders, so remain standing, the life group leaders of these groups, they're going to be out in the lobby. And so if you need a group, uh, these group leaders are, are going to be, they'll have their life group leader t-shirts on. And they can get you connected and get you plugged in. And so I do want to pray as we sort of commission these new groups that I'm just super excited and super grateful for. So let's, let's take time to pray. Father, I'm so grateful for each individual standing. Father, as we try and do this thing called life groups, would you bless us and would you give us mercy and grace? Again, we want to be a church where no one walks alone, but we need your Holy Spirit to do that. And so each individual standing, would you give them courage would you give them confidence in your leading in their life? And anybody who's not yet plugged into a life group, would they see those who are standing as an inspiration to say, I want to belong, I want to get connected, I want to be a part of what God is doing here. So Lord, do what only you can do. We trust you, we love you. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's just say thanks to God for us. Let's say thanks. So... A part, of, a part of life groups as well, typically our strategy with life groups um, when it comes to serving our community, we, we, what we want is every time there's a, a life group, we want that group to be meaningfully engaged 
with a partner ministry in the community. So for example, um, you know, we, we partner with Voice of Hope, we partner with Leap In. And what that means is we want life groups to own these relationships. We partner with an organization called Grace Clinic that gives away free health care and unashamedly shares the gospel while they do it. And typically, what we want to do is to say, hey, life groups, own those relationships. Own serving. We don't want an avalanche of serving, typically. We want a steady stream where life groups over a long period of time are saying, no, I'm here. You can count on me. We're not just going to show up once and then you're never going to see us again. That's, the goal is long-term, steady, and consistent. And yet, every once in a while, a unique need comes along. And so our partner, Grace Clinic, which actually um, is housed within the facility at Leap In, just a couple of blocks down the street, uh, they reached out and they said, hey, we have a need um, for Thanksgiving food and, and bags for our patients. And so is there an opportunity for LifePoint to help us out in that? And again, typically our strategy is individual life groups serving in an individual way, but this is sort of a unique opportunity. So we said, sure. And so um, on your way out today, uh, there are some Aldi bags that we got for 12 cents a piece, um, always down for a bargain. And uh, these bags, there's 30 of them, and so you can get them either at Guest Central, which is the table out in the lobby, or one of our connections team will be by the door. If, you, if you, your family wants to take one of these, there's a list of items okay, on here. Um, please feel no obligation to get every single item. For example, one of the items is a $20 or $30 um, gift card uh, so they can go buy like a turkey right, for Thanksgiving. If you can't afford that, don't get it. It's okay. But if you can afford some of the other things, get those, check off the things that you could get, bring the bag back, and we'll figure out a way to make sure every single bag has everything that it needs. Okay? Do what you can do. Don't go beyond your means. But if this is something you feel like the Lord has put on your heart to do, you can grab one of those on your way out. Okay, I'm just going to put this somewhere awkwardly so it's not in my way for the rest of the message. So I'm going to put it right there. Okay. All right, so that's going on. Um, this morning, we're starting a new series uh, called Exiles. Okay, so if it, maybe it's your first time with us this morning. You're, you've come at a great time. Uh, this series, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. Okay, the book of Daniel, and that's within the Old Testament. All right, and, and the big idea, the concept of this series that we're going to say over and over again is that faith is more about how you live than where you live. Faith is more about how you live than where you live, and we'll see that idea expressed, hopefully, uh, throughout this book. Now, here in a moment, we're going to open up to chapter 1, and we're not going to go through the entire book of Daniel in this series. It's only a five-week series, and we're, we're going to go through most of the, the chapters that correspond with those five weeks, one, two, three, four, and I think six, okay? So just so you're aware of that. Um, but in this series, I just want to give us a little bit of context to the world that we're about to jump into, okay? So Daniel... Um, he, he's a, he's a, a guy in Jerusalem, um, and at this time, um, Israel, which is God's chosen nation, exists in, in two sort of separate nations or kingdoms, okay? And so the, the year that we're going to jump into in our text, it's about 605 B.C., okay? 605 B.C., so 605 years before Jesus, okay? We can think of it that way. Well, um, about 370 years before 605 B.C. is uh, like 975 B.C. And at this time, uh, the kingdom of Israel is one giant kingdom. Not that giant, but it's a kingdom, right? It's, it's unified. Well, what happens is King Solomon, uh, who is David's son, uh, he doesn't do a great job. He, he, he follows other gods. He marries all sorts of uh, women. Uh, it's not a good not good. Okay, if you ever ask, well, does God really outlaw polygamy? Just go and look at the story of, of Solomon and say, look, it doesn't work out, okay? Just don't do it. Anyway, that's an ancillary, secondary point. Um, his son, a guy named Jehoiakim, 
He becomes king, and he is evil. He goes away from the Lord, and what happens is the, this one kingdom divides into two. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah holds within it the capital, Jerusalem, that we think of today. And so there are these two kingdoms. And what, what happens over the next 370 years leading up to the time of Daniel in 605 BC is one king after another rebels against God. The kings of Israel over and over and over and over again do what is evil inside of the Lord. And oftentimes, even the kings of Judah, who are oftentimes a little bit better, there's some moments of greatness and some real moments of tragedy, they also rebel against God. And so what happens is over time, God begins to warn the people through people called prophets who really hear God's word and then direct those words to the people. They say, hey, God is going to destroy you. God says to them, I'm going to wipe you out if you keep rebelling against me. I'll do it. Over and over again, they get this warning. And finally, 605 BC, God uses this king in this kingdom called Babylon, which we talked about back in the Revelation series, if you recall, and this king called Nebuchadnezzar to essentially judge Judah and Jerusalem and to wipe them out. And what we see over the course of history, if you look at contemporary prophets to Daniel, which would be Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there's three different sort of waves of invasion against Jerusalem. And this is sort of the first wave of invasion. And that's what the world that we're entering in, that's the setup. And I just want you to know, where are we? What's happening in the historical context? Okay? Maybe too much information, but now you know, and I at least like to know, so that's just me. All right, so we're going to be in, in Daniel chapter 1. I know we've prayed like seven times already, but hey, we're at church. You can't pray too many times, right? So I want to pray again. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. And, uh, and then we'll get in the text. All right, Father, we need you. We love you. Um, God, never allow us to take this lightly, what we get to do every Sunday morning. God, I want to praise you for your word that you give it to us to guide us and to lead us. And so would you do just that, Father, this morning? Send your spirit. Uh, do what only you can do in us and through us. We trust you. Open this text to us in, in powerful ways. It's in Christ's wonderful, powerful name that we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 1. Now that we've got the context, we're going to open things up in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, it's definitely how you say it. You know, just trust me, okay? I have no idea, but you say it with confidence and then you keep moving. King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay? So again, all of that setup, God has been warning the people over and over again, look, I will judge you. Repent. Listen to me. I'll do it. And they don't. And so Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes and besieges Jerusalem. You know what's really fascinating is sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we think, oh, old stories. Is there really any historicity or historical evidence that these things happen? I think it's always cool when, when, you, when you see in archaeological study, yes. There is. And so I want to show you this, this picture. This is called the Chronicles of Babylon, this tablet. And what's amazing uh, is it documents some of these invasions of Jerusalem. Stunning, right? Like we see in this document right here, Babylonians, right? Yeah, we went and we laid siege to Jerusalem and we crushed them. So I just, again, I just want you to know, like, this is real history, real people, real emotions, real families, real events, real pain, real tragedy, real sorrow. And let that draw you into the story that God is telling, and let that then point you to the majesty of Christ and what he's done, okay? It's just amazing. So this is real stuff. Go on in verse 2. And the Lord gave, and again, God is involved here, which is fascinating, 
Jehoiakim, it's definitely how you say it, different than the first time, king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in, and skillful in, in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, right? Depending on your, uh, your uh, translation, it will be Chaldeans or the Babylonians, okay? And so what happens here is, is Nebuchadnezzar has a real strategy. He's going to come in and, and take the best out of Jerusalem and take it to Babylon, Okay, and so part of his strategy there is that I'm going to go into the temple, the place where these, the Jews, like the one true God resides. I'm going to take the best of the temple, these treasures from the days of King Solomon, take them back to Babylon. Then I'm going to identify the best, the brightest, the most prominent young people, and I'm going to export and, and, and take them into exile into my foreign land. And so these people that would have been taken are of royal lineage. They're likely teenagers at this time. Terrifying situation. But his strategy is, I want to annihilate Jerusalem and Israel in every way that I can. And part of that strategy is then reprogramming them in such a way that they go from being an Israelite, a Hebrew, to a Babylonian. And the way that he's going to reprogram them is by teaching them the language and the literature of Babylon, and he's going to go a step further as we go into verses 5 through 7. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. That's verse 5. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Okay? Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called uh, Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Okay? So again, this strategy of I'm going to just totally take out all the good, these four are among those who have been deported. Again, likely a royal lineage to these guys. Daniel and his three friends. Okay? And so then he says, again, I'm going to... I'm going to re-educate you. You're going to learn the language. I just want to imagine if this is you. You're, you're taken to a Babylon, you, and, and, and they're like, hey, you're going to do this, and then you're going to stand in the king's court. King is a terrifying guy. And you're like, wait a minute, he's not my king. They're like, no, you're going to stand in his court, but you have to become an expert in the language and the customs of Babylon. And I'd be like, I don't know about you. Like, I don't know a lick of, of Babylonian. I don't know anything about Chaldean. I, I, I can put me in the fields, you know? Like, don't, I'm not smart enough for this. But these guys, you just imagine the brilliance that they had to be identified as no. They can, in three years' time, become masters of the culture, stand in the presence of the king, and be trusted, honored advisors. Again, these guys are, are sort of top tier. And so then, what we see is that these names that they're given, there's actually a lot to these names. So Daniel, his name... Again, they're given new names. Daniel's name means God is my judge. His new name 
His new name, which is Belteshazzar, means Baal protect his life. I was identified with the one true God. Now I'm being renamed and identifying with the false god, Baal. Hananiah. His name meant the Lord shows grace. His new Babylonian name, command of Aku. Once again, a false Babylonian god. Mishael, his name was who is like God. His new name, who is as Aku is. Once again, a false god. Azariah, his name, the Lord is my help. His new name, servant of Nebu. I don't know about you, but that would really bother me. Every time you call, and, and names at this time were far different than names in our time. Right now, we're like, I don't know, you know, Sunflower. I like the sound of that. So I'm going to name, name my kid whatever, and, and, which is, okay, fine. Um, so it might have been offensive. Um, but you're like, I named my daughter Sunflower, and I'm very offended. Um, beautiful name. And so what happens, though, is, is names have meaning, and you sort of carry this. No, like, God is my judge. Daniel Daniel would have carried this sort of meaning and significance of his name. And now suddenly, every time they say his new Babylonian name, it's no, associated with Baal, false god, the sort of the chief false gods of the Babylonians. And again, that would just irk you. It would me. So then what's their response? New language, right? New names, new customs, new food. That's a key as well. And then they're going to be given the food of Babylon. So they respond... In verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. That's his response. And as I was reading this this week, I found that really, really fascinating. Again, learn the literature, which would have included all sorts of study of, of false, evil things that Daniel would have known study about astrology and sorcery and all these different things that would have led to false worship of false gods. Become an expert in this literature. Daniel's like, all right. Then I'm going to rename you. And again, we just went through that in, in, in quite great detail. Daniel doesn't seem to protest this, which seems to me to be a fascinating thing. But then they say, hey, you're going to eat the king's food. And that's the line that Daniel chooses to draw. Isn't that weird? Become an expert in all of these things. Eat delicious food from the king's table. Daniel says, no, I'm not doing it. I will not do that. And again, if it were me, I'd say, great, give me the delicious food. No, I'm not learning your crazy religions. Don't call me that. That's very offensive to who my God is. That's fine. Why? And I think this shapes how we interact in our culture. So why is it that Daniel takes a stand in this moment? I think the point is this, is crucial for us as we live in Babylon today, we need to prioritize our spiritual identity over our external activity. Now, how does eating food connect with spiritual identity over external activity? Isn't food, eating food an activity? Yes, absolutely. But for Daniel, it's far more. You see, Daniel understood becoming an expert in the language, becoming an expert in the literature, he knew that wasn't going to affect his true faith. He knew reading about all of these false things wouldn't change the fact that he knew the one true God. What about being called this name that associated him with a false god? Daniel knew that people could call him whatever they wanted to call him, but he knew who he was and who God knew him to be. 
could call him whatever. It doesn't change who he really is. So why then does eating the king's food impact his spiritual identity? And to answer that, you've got to go back into the book of Leviticus. And so if you're looking for some light reading um, after Trunktober today, um, because you should go to that, but after Trunktober and you're bored, you don't feel like watching football, um, go to Leviticus chapter 11. And in that chapter, what you will see is this long list of what's called the food laws that God lays out to Israel. It's these animals that God deems to be clean or fit to, um, fit to eat and unclean or not fit to eat. And what God then lays out is, look, if you eat the foods that I tell you um, should not be eaten, then you will what's called defile yourself. You will be defiled. And there's all sorts of different things that can defile you. It's not just eating the foods that God has commanded you not to eat. It's also um, you know, sexual activity in an area that you're not supposed to, all sorts of things. And I think that then begs the question, well, what is, to be, what is, it, what is it to be defiled? To be defiled is really to be made unclean before the presence of God. And we know that we can't be in the presence of God and be, excuse me, unclean. And so to be defiled is to, to essentially have your relationship with God disrupted. And so then when we go back to this question, how food matters so much to Daniel, what we see is that he was unwilling to disrupt his relationship with God. And the food, eating the food, which likely would have been pig, for example, which would have been a direct contradiction to God's word and direct disobedience to God's word, he's saying, no, that's where I cross the line because that's the thing God commanded very clearly. That's the thing I can see. I'm not going to do that. So Daniel's spiritual identity was at the heart of his resolve to make a stand. And that word resolve is also really, really important as well. What is resolve? Resolve is this sort of conviction of the heart. It's the commitment to say no, no more. So his resolve to take a stand here, again, is based on the spiritual identity in God. And you have to understand as well, as he's making this stand, and he's going to this overseer of this, this group of exiles, as he's making this request, it would have been a very, very dangerous thing. And we see, we get the idea that this uh, overseer is not too, not too pleased, right? And so, um, again, he asks, the, he's referred to as the eunuch, um, to not eat these things. And verse 9, it says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So pause there for a second. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king, horrifically violent man. There's one story in the book of 2 Kings where Nebuchadnezzar has this, uh, actually it would have been the king we read about earlier, and I'm not going to try and say his name for the third time because I'll say it worse than the first two times. Um, but he takes this king and he takes his sons, and this king had rebelled against him takes the king and he takes his sons and then he has his sons killed before the king and then he has the king's eyes gouged out so that the last thing that this guy would remember seeing is the death of his sons. I mean just like ah, oh, I just that is evil. Like that's who they're dealing with and so there's some understandable like reservation here like wait a minute the king said to give you this food you want me to not give you that food I'm scared um, and so he says, um, so you would endanger my head with the king. Like, literally, he will remove my head from my body. Um, 
Continuing on in verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, that uh, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed, observed by you. So he sets up this experiment. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. It's like, look, try it for ten days. Just give us vegetables. It's going to be fine. And the key here we see is that God was with them. God gave them favor in the eyes of these leaders to even allow this, frankly, dangerous experiment. And God's hand, even in the midst of a horrible situation, even in the midst of of exile, even in the midst of living in a foreign land that, that rejected God, God was still present. And I think that's such an important point for us to see that even in the midst of hardship today, even in the midst of sickness, whatever it is you're dealing with, even in the midst of hardship, pain, turmoil, trial, God is with you. He does not forsake you or abandon you. Jesus promised, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Church, we're still in the age. That means Jesus is still with us. Hallelujah. Now, every single week... um, sort of stepping back from this text. What we see happen is that this goes well. They continue to eat uh, vegetables. And eventually, over time, after this three years of re-education goes by, they are presented to King Nebuchadnezzar. And what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar finds them extraordinarily gifted. What we see is that Daniel is given the ability to interpret dreams, and that comes into play, uh, as we'll see next week. God gives them such favor. And and Nebuchadnezzar says, these guys are ten times better than everybody else. Amazing. Now, again, every single week, um, the teaching team from across campuses, so uh, guys who have sort of my um, position from the different campuses, Lewis Center in Westerville, Plain City, um, Delaware, we typically share our notes or our manuscripts with one another. Um, I will say I don't often uh, always share because sometimes I'm rewriting what I wrote Monday through Thursday on Saturday night. But anyway, um, Dean Folks, who is our lead pastor, uh, he shares on like Monday morning because he's some type of machine. And um, he, he'll send out his notes and I'll, I'll read you know, his manuscript, his notes, just to sort of see where he's going. And he had this amazing insight. I'll just paraphrase it. He, he talks through how, how in the first four voices, or four, uh, four, excuse me, first seven verses, you see who's in charge. For example, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar sort of resolved or determined, I'm going to lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy it. Then what you see is Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going to take people captive. He resolves or determines in this moment, no, I'm in charge, I'm taking people out. He resolves or determines in this moment, I'm going to put them through a re-education program where they learn a new language, new custom, I'm going to give them new names, I am in charge. Verses 1 through 7, Babylon is in the driver's seat. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved. Daniel determined. Daniel took a moment to stand up, remember, based off of his spiritual identity, based off of who he is in God, to say, no, I'm going to make a resolve, this change, this moment of the heart to say, I'm standing up for what I believe in. And what you see, church, is that in the rest of this book, 
Babylon's no longer in the driver's seat. God is in the driver's seat through Daniel and his three friends. And I thought that was so fascinating. And actually what's really, really fascinating is when you trace the the empire of Babylon, you could make a very plausible and, and very easy, I think, to prove argument that taking these four dudes into captive was the greatest mistake of the Babylonian Empire and actually led to the fall of the Babylonian Empire. And everything changes at verse 8 in Daniel's resolve. It's like a door swinging in a new direction. And so if God can topple the Babylonian Empire with one man saying, no, I'm taking a stand for my identity in God... My question this morning is, what can God do in you? What can God do around you? What can God do through you when you resolve to take a stand for your gospel identity? It's a powerful thought. It really is. It's frankly a very exciting thought. And I want to be clear, I changed the wording. Over and over again, I've been saying spiritual identity. Now I've said gospel identity. Why is that? Church, you and I, we live in a post-resurrection age. We live in an age where the good news of the gospel is the good news. It's an age where the good news means that Jesus has died so that through faith in him, God does not pour his wrath out against sin upon us, but through faith in Jesus, our wrath has been poured, God's wrath against sin has been poured out upon Jesus. And so now, church, we have to understand that the gospel identity means that Jesus has moved us from death to life. That's really what gospel identity means. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about who Jesus is. I've said this probably three or four times, but I think it's so important in our culture. We live in a very familiar with Jesus and Christianity culture. And sometimes what that leads to is we we have this sort of mental assent that Jesus exists. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I went to church. Wait a minute. Those are two different things. Hold on a second. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I think he, he, he lived. Wait a minute, that's not believing in Jesus. What is believing in Jesus? Believing in Jesus, again, as I've said many times, is understanding individually that you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God against your sin. Believing in Jesus is then saying, no, as I just said a couple of minutes ago, Jesus took the wrath of God in my place. Believing in Jesus is believing in substitution. (laughs) Jesus in my place. And then believing in Jesus is saying, I am a new creation in Christ through my faith in him. Because Jesus has given me his righteousness, his life, in place of my wickedness and my death. Jesus, again, has brought me from death to life. And so then, as we look at this incredible moment, where frankly the course of history changes, because one guy stood up with some gospel identity resolve, and we asked the question, what, what, do you need, what do you need to do? What, what do you need to stand up for your gospel identity? What is one area in your personal life that you need to have a gospel identity resolve? And maybe you know, you're hearing this, you're like, man, I live in Green Camp. There's 12 people in Green Camp. Now there's 309 people in Green Camp. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> well, I think we hear these epic stories and we're like, man, I, I live in Marion, you know, whatever. I think we sell ourselves short. I think we sell the value of ourselves short. 
And I want to remind you that you were valuable enough for God himself to come and live and die for you. That's really valuable. Frankly, there is nothing more valuable than you than us. And so then we, we sort of zoom out. It's not to be self-important. I want to be clear. But it's to say God has a unique and individual plan for your life, and that is true if God has saved you. It's actually true if you have air in your lungs and you're not yet saved. God has a purpose for you, or else he wouldn't have created you. The miracle of life is stunning. The fact that we exist at all is mind-blowing. God has a purpose for your life, and then when you place your faith in Jesus, God has almost an unimaginable plan of glory for him through you. And so what I want us to think about is, well, maybe I've just been going with the flow. I've been doing these different things. Holy Spirit, lead us. What, what is it that you've just been saying? I've been just consuming this. I know this one thing is a sin, but frankly, I don't really care. I, I know I shouldn't you know, talk that way. I, I know what happens when I watch this thing or when I listen to this thing, but is it really a big deal? I know that, that these things that I buy really can't satisfy me, but, you know, does it really matter? It does. It does. And I think we undersell, we underbelieve what God can do in our lives when we stand up and say, no more. Like, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not watching the thing anymore. Holy Spirit, fill me with the power to no longer be addicted to that thing. I'm not talking to people this way anymore. I'm not taking advantage of people this way anymore. I'm not the owner of my resources anymore. God, you've made me a steward of all of these things. I'm taking a stand to say no more. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm, con I'm convinced, God, that I need to make a change. I can't do it on my own, and I want to be clear. Taking a stand in your gospel identity is not something you do so that you will be saved. Taking a stand in your gospel identity and identifying this thing that you need to repent of, flee from, and no longer pursue, that is a response to the fact that you have been saved. Those are really big differences. You're not doing this so that you will be saved. You're doing this because Jesus has saved you already. It's an outflow and outpouring of what Christ has already done for you. And so what is it for you? Can you identify it? Can you think of it? I've told the story a thousand times for me and my now wife. It was driving home one night, living together, doing all the things and saying, we say we believe in this Jesus. We know we shouldn't be doing it, but we say, we've said over and over again, yeah, we're going to do it anyway. And when we took this moment to say no more, I, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't. And it's not because of me. It's because of what God was doing in us. But I can trace back this moment to that moment. I really can't. Maddie really can. What is it for you? And again, maybe it's some of these external things that we can identify. And maybe for others of us, who is the one person in your life that you need to have a gospel conversation with? Maybe God wants to use you to change the trajectory of their life, to change the trajectory of their family, to change the trajectory of their eternity. Once again, I think we sell ourselves short. I'm not the, you know, we say to ourselves, I'm not the pastor, I don't know how to say these things. You, you do. You do. You know how. And you know what's really great is you don't have to be perfect. God is working in that person already. And when you're going into that conversation, you're saying, God, I'm, I can't do it, but I believe you can. Help me say the right words. Help me not say the right words, but change them anyway. Right? How can you look back in your life and say, God, you used me for your glory, for your purposes in that moment? And so it's really two things. 
What does God need to, to change in you? Where are you going to have some gospel identity resolve? Or where do you need to have some resolve, some commitment to share your faith with others? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I, I want this to be a response moment, a commitment moment for you. We're going to have our Next Steps team in the back. If you need to share with them, it would you just say, would you pray for me? Would you pray that God would give me some resolve, some commitment today? We're going to stand. We're going to sing after I pray. And I want you to make, I want you to make commitments. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we trust you. And we're so grateful for your word that it's through your word that all of this comes from. All of the beauty of your work in messy people's lives, all of the all of your power and your glory revealed through broken instruments like us. And Jesus, you, you saw us as valuable enough to save us and to live in the muck and the dirt and the grime like one of us and to, to live perfectly because we couldn't. And so God, this morning, again, by the power of your Spirit, Holy Spirit, move in, in a mighty way to help us identify the thing where we need to stand up and say, no more. I'm not doing this anymore. Jesus, you, you viewed this thing as serious enough to die on the cross for. Help me to stop pursuing it, following it, loving it, promoting it, because it's against, Jesus, what you've done for me. Would you do that in us, Lord? Give us maybe one person on our mind that we need to share this good news of the gospel with. Lord, I'm excited to see what you do. I'm expectant to see what you do and how you change people's eternities and lives. And they can trace it back to this moment. They said, God, I responded to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things.